Unless you have been lost on a island in the South Pacific for the last few years, you know that we are electing our 45th president of the United States this year. Since the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, we are the unrivaled superpower of the world. And if you read some of the opinions out there, we're headed to one of our craziest elections in our nation's history. Some say it's been the most unpredictable since the 1890s. Uh, in one party, we have a self-avowed socialist who looks like he will lose a nomination to a former first lady who may be indicted uh, before the election ever takes place. In the other party, you have a host of candidates whose most recent debate was so unpresidential and juvenile. One journalist, Molly Hemingway for The Federalist, said it was so bad it was end of the Rome or end of our republic bad. It's so bad that some are now talking of a third political party. We've been a nation governed by two political parties uh, since uh, Abraham Lincoln. In fact, uh, since, uh, since then, only in 1912 has any other third party come in second, and they didn't come close to winning at that time, much less a third party winning an election. So with the future of our nation hanging in such limbo, and right now we're seemingly going to have to choose between two very questionable leaders, our appropriate response should be, hello, uh, despair, depression, hopelessness. Or maybe our response should be indulgence. Let's just eat, drink, and be merry until Rome burns down, until we die, or until the end of the world. Or maybe we should scout out real estate in Bora Bora. Um, you know, they need Jesus in Bora Bora also. Let's just take a really long mission trip. Um, or we could remember that the true king and ruler of the universe is still in control even when life seems most chaotic. Not just our nation, but your life. Where, where you're at. When it seems most chaotic, he's still in control. He's not worried. He's not sweating. Uh, he's still in control and we are exactly right where he wants us. And whoever leads this nation does not change our mission as the people of God. And whoever leads this nation doesn't determine the success or failure of our mission as the people of God. The church transcends nations, transcends governments. So let's not wig out, right? The future of humanity does not hinge on this election. Um, as Russell Moore wrote this past week for the Christianity Today, when responding to this supposed problem of our election as a choice between the lesser of two evils, he said, unless Jesus Christ is on the ballot, we're always choosing between the lesser of two evils. Always. Some of you may remember in 1991, Louisiana voters had to choose between a convicted felon or a former KKK leader for our governor, and we chose the convicted felon, and we're still doing okay as a state. All right? so, in fact, six years later, TOPS was created, for which many people in this room are very grateful. And so, um, so, but, but how do we, as the people of God, uh, who have this king, who still rules and reigns, is in control, how do we have the proper response to what's going on? If the proper response isn't fear, it isn't despair, it isn't hopelessness, what is a proper response? Because we also are not a people who are called to serve our king as citizens of a nation in apathy or disengagement. Well, Jesus is on the throne. Who cares the president is? I don't even have to vote. I don't have to care. I don't have to pray. That's also not an appropriate response. Um, 
Our king calls us to be good citizens who exercise the rights that we have as citizens in whatever country we choose to live. So in America, we have rights to vote, rights to speak up, rights to pay taxes, pray for our leaders, among other things. But how else do we live under the rule of our king in this kingdom? We're going to begin to see that this morning in this passage in Mark, beginning in verse 12 of Mark chapter 1. The Spirit immediately drove him, Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Father, we are grateful. We are grateful that our allegiance is with the eternal king of the universe. And that one day when all of these nations are gone, your kingdom will still reign. So, Father, we're thankful for the foundation that provides us as a people living in a chaotic world. But, Father, we need wisdom. Like, what are we supposed to do now? How do we live? How do we view things like elections that are chaotic and citizens of the nation of America and citizens of your kingdom? So, Father, we ask you to help us see and understand who you are this morning and that, that you would teach us, you would instruct us, you would illuminate our eyes. God, we need this as citizens, we need this as moms and dads and parents of children. We need this as, as workers and the jobs that we have. Father, we need this this morning, what you have for us. And so pour it out, the power of your spirit to make us that people. For your glory alone, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark is writing... The first written account of the life of Jesus, this, here we in, in this end of this concluding section. So really, Mark 1, 1 through 15 is this introductory section, rather, of the Gospel of Mark. He's kind of laying the foundation for everything he's going to reveal through the rest of this letter. <clears throat> he's boldly declared many qualities of Jesus that we have spent time exploring that are not only true of Jesus the man, but also of God. And so you're left with this overwhelming conclusion after Mark 1 through 15 he is the one. Jesus is the one. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one that we need for our greatest problems as individuals and as people. He's the promised one of the Old Testament scriptures. He's a continuation and culmination of God's salvation work in the Old Testament. He is this new work of God that is as mind-blowing as creation itself. And this all came to a head in this passage we looked at last week where Jesus was baptized by John. Literally, the heavens were ripped open. The Holy Spirit descended like a dove, empowering Jesus for ministry. And this voice from heaven called out, This is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased, before he ever did anything. Just because that's who he was. And so after this high point, kind of like an ordination service, you go out and eat, you celebrate, you kind of bask in the glow of the ceremony, right? So Jesus would have marched straight to the temple in Jerusalem to be loved and adored by all of God's people. Yay, the Messiah's come. He's here. Let's celebrate. Or the Holy Spirit, who now empowers him, sends him, drives him, literally like the scapegoat in the Old Testament was sent into the wilderness on the Day of Atonement, sends him into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting and temptation by none other than God's greatest enemy, Satan. 40 days, very reminiscent of the 40 days and the 40 years that Israelites spent, the 40 days that Israelites spent at Mount Sinai, the 40 years they spent wandering in the wilderness. Where, where the nation had failed in the wilderness and gave in to temptation and rebelled against God. So now the, the, the true son, the true Israel, 
Would, would he fail? Would he succeed? He's just been given this power. What's he going to do with it? Is he going to obey the Father? Is he going to, to succeed where they fail? Or is he going to use this power for himself? Is he, going to, is he going to take the way out of the cross, the other way that was offered to him in the passage that Jesse read in Matthew 4? Well, we're going to find out. Mark sums up his, this entire opening introductory section in verse 15 with this statement by Jesus, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now is the time. Here comes the kingdom. There are two words that are translated uh, from the original Greek into the English as time. One, one word speaks of time on a watch. So what time is it? What time of day is it? You can tell somebody it's uh, 10, 24, right? The other word speaks of not time on the watch, but an era, an age, an, an, ep- an epoch, a period of time. Uh, like in the early 90s, Chicago Bulls, before they took the court, they had this bench player, Cliff Levingston, who would gather the team around him, and he'd call out, what time is it? And the Bulls will call out, it's game time. My girls know that because I do that all the time. And they'd take the court and they usually would win, right? One of the greatest teams ever. Um, Now, it'd be kind of awkward if Cliff would have called out, what time is it? It's 6.38, Cliff. You know, why are you asking? That's a different use of time. That's not what he's talking about. It's time now to go and win this game. It's, it's this period of time we've got to go be successful. So that's the word that's being used here when Jesus says the time is fulfilled. Not time on a clock or in that day a sundial, but it's now is the age. Now is the, the period of time where the kingdom of God is going to begin to show up. Now is the time. So let's spend a little time thinking about that. What, what kingdom, whose kingdom, where did this idea of a kingdom and a king come from? So, so going back into the Old Testament, we did this quick review last week. But you can go all the way back to creation to see where this idea of a king and a kingdom originated. When God created man and woman, he created them in the image of God. He gave them them dominion to rule over creation. And they, as the image bearers, as they obeyed the creation mandate to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, everywhere they filled the earth and went, as his image bearers ruling over creation, they would bear image to the king. So all of creation would know, those are the image bearers, they're ruling and having dominion over us. This is the kingdom of this great king who created us. This is where this whole idea was built into God's creation mandate. And so they would rule for him, they would rule with him over all the creation. Well, everything changed in Genesis 3. Sin enters creation, the image is still present in humanity, but it's scarred. We were created to know and love and worship and serve our king, but instead, humanity chose to worship themselves, creation. So what does the king do? The king is a holy king. He's a righteous king. He's a just king. And he could have justly wiped the slate clean and started over. But this king is also a loving king, a good king, kind king, a gracious king, a merciful king. And he wanted his creation to know that aspect of his character as well. And so he, being this kind of king, chose to set in motion a plan, a reveal a plan. Now he's going to have to deal with sin. He's got to deal with sin because uh, the king is so holy and righteous he can't just allow sin to coexist without a price being paid for sin. The king said that to sin would bring death in Genesis 2. If you disobey the command I gave you, you're going to die. So death is, sin is, uh, death is the result of sin, separation from the holy, righteous king, right? So a price has to be paid, but what we find out from this good, kind, gracious king is he even takes care of that himself for the rebellious people. 
But he would still have a people for himself. And these people would still be sinful. And they would still rule over this cursed creation. And they would still bear his image. But he would make a way for them to return to him, to live under his good rule, to be his people dwelling in his land. And so this king begins to call the people to himself. Adam and Eve were part of it, the first part of it. Their son Abel, their son Seth, later on Noah, later on Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah, later on Moses and Miriam and Joshua and other leaders and other people that he is calling to himself to be part of his kingdom. And that king continues to call people and the, and the, the people be, continue to grow and, and the king continues to reveal more and more about himself, how his people should live and what they should eat and what they should wear and how they should act and treat each other and how they treat people from other kingdoms and other nations. Like some people think in the Old Testament, it's just if they're not a Jew, go kill them. That's not how the king told them to treat people from other nations. How they should act and do right. How to show mercy. How to walk humbly with their king. And because his people still had this propensity to sin and to reject his good rule, the king was gracious enough to provide a way for them to stay in relationship with this king. Now he said in Genesis 2, if you sin, you have to die. So blood has to be shed to cover our sins, right? God, God said that. He even demonstrated that in Genesis 3 when he, when he killed the animal to clothe Adam and Eve who were naked and shameful. But he made a way through the, old, the, 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 the Mosaic law and the, the priestly rituals for them not to kill themselves, but to take an animal that was innocent, sinless, and to, to slaughter the animal and let the animal be killed in their place, to substitute the sacrifice of the animal, one who is innocent and sinless, in their place, so they could maintain this relationship with this good, holy, righteous king. He's a, he's a good king. He's so gracious. He's not this angry God of the Old Testament just killing people left and right. He's always been good. He's always called his people to himself and made a way for them to know him. But one day, his people began to look around at other nations and notice that they had kings that they could see and touch and hear and feel. And they said, we want our own king that we can see and touch and hear and feel. We want our own earthly king, a man who's a king. And so they rejected the good king. The Bible records this in 1 Samuel 8, 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, my prophet, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And like he was prone to do when his people wanted to chase something harmful, he would allow them to chase it because it was part of them growing and learning and being disciplined. And so he gave them the king they wanted. We want a king who's attractive and strong and tall and mighty. So they, they chose this guy Saul to be their king. Head and shoulders taller than anybody else. Number one draft pick. Probably signed by Alabama, right? Saul is great and mighty. Something that all the people looked to and were impressed by. But Saul was very wicked on the inside. And Saul did not lead the people well and take care of them. And so this good, most high king of the universe gave the people the kind of king that he would choose. Maybe not one outwardly attractive or much to look at, not famous or rich, not imposing or intimidating, but, but this young man, David, had this key quality. He had a heart that was in love with the most high king. And he loved the ways of this king. And he loved to read his laws and his rules. And he loved to think on them and write songs about them and obey them. Yeah, he was still sinful. David was very sinful. But he also was described in the Bible as a man after the king's heart. 
David was the greatest earthly king the people of the Most High King ever had. He led them well. He led them to vanquish all their enemies, build a great city, become a great nation, envied by other nations. And one day, David desired to do something for the king that he loved. The presence of God was was, uh, encapsulated in this object called the Ark of the Covenant, this golden box that had angels on top of it that contained the Ten Commandments and Aaron's rod and other things. And and uh, it was the place where the, the people would meet with God through the high priest. They couldn't do it themselves, but the high priest would go to the, the inner place where this ark was and intercede on behalf of the people and sacrifice on behalf of the people. And this ark had been in a tent for years and years and years. And David's like, this ark doesn't need to be in a tent while I'm living in this nice house. Let's build a nice house for this ark. Let's build a temple. It's a really beautiful house. And while the high king knew this was David's desire, but because David was involved in so much killing and war, he didn't want David to build the house. David, you collect the materials, but you're not going to build it. Somebody else will. But the king made a promise to David in the course of this request in 2 Samuel 7. It says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now that's an amazing promise to a dude, an earthly king. How is he going to have an eternal, everlasting throne? How is that possible? Forever? That's kind of strong. God, you know what you're saying here? Yeah, I think so. Right, So there's only two ways that could happen. Either literally the throne of David has to eternally be in just perpetual existence. Like there has to always be a throne in Jerusalem and there has to be a guy in the line of David who's always sitting on the throne. So it's kind of an eternal throne. Or the second way it could be fulfilled if there was an eternal king to sit on this throne. And of course that is exactly what God was intending to say. The people will figure this out. Once the Most High King, um, once the people of, of God lost their earthly king again about 400 years later, they knew there, there, there has to be an eternal king. It's not an eternal throne. And so they called him the Messiah, the anointed, the chosen one. The Most High King began to, to speak through his people called the prophets to give them clues about who this Messiah is and what he would do and how he would rule over the people as their king. And then all of a sudden, years later, one day in the wilderness, here comes this, this man, John, dressed like one of the famous prophets, Elijah, yelling out that the king is coming. Now is the time. Repent and be baptized. And then one day, John looks at this man named Jesus from Nazareth and says, Here he is. He's the one. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. He should be baptizing me. He's the one we've been waiting for. Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son? Wait, wait. The king is supposed to be a descendant of David. How can the descendant of David be in this backwoods town of Nazareth? Well, unknown to most, he was actually born in Bethlehem, hometown of King David. His earthly dad is a descendant of David. But, but why wasn't that known? Like, Why wasn't that an obvious part of his credentials, like a card he could carry around and let you know, I'm actually a son of David, I'm actually in the line of David? But what we're going to find out is this. Yes, Jesus is the king who's bringing the kingdom, but this kingdom is not what the people were expecting. They were expecting another King David who could restore Israel to their former glory, which means because they were living under the rule of Rome, he would have to raise up an army and march on Rome and conquer Caesar so that Israel could once again vanquish all of their foes. But this kingdom's different. It looks different. It's not a geopolitical kingdom any longer. 
Well, then what would he need to be and what kind of kingdom is this then? So don't take the fact, though, that, that Jesus wasn't a military leader as a sign that he was somehow timid or soft or weak, right? Jesus was the definition of a man. He is the epitome of what true strength is, while at the same time being incredibly tender with those that he did not want to crush. It's kind of like in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Susan is learning about Aslan, and Mr. Beaver's telling her about Aslan, and she was shocked that he wasn't a man. Is a, is a lion? And she asked Mr. Beaver, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver said, safe? Who said anything about safe? He, he is not safe. He is very dangerous. But he is good. He is good. He's the king, I tell you, Mr. Beaver said. C.S. Lewis understood the character and nature of Jesus as he depicted him in the character of Aslan. In this demonstration of power, Jesus shows his power as he leaves his baptism. He's driven by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, fasting in the wilderness with wild animals, Mark tells us. Think lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Like literally, that's what he's speaking of. Wild animals in this wilderness, which was also a way for him to connect to the people who were reading this gospel for the first time. The Roman Christians who were being persecuted by Nero, one way they were being persecuted is they were having the skins of wild animals put on their back and fed to wild dogs. So you persecuted brothers and sisters in Rome know that your king, he was also with the wild animals, demonstrating his power. Survivor man goes all over the world, survives for a week in these wilderness environments, finding food and grubs and whatever to eat. Survivor man would be dead and five times over and eaten by animals if he had to do what Jesus was called to do in this situation. And I love survivor man. I'm not hating on him. We know more about what actually happened during the temptation from Matthew 4 and Luke 4 that that Jesse read earlier. Um, But I wanted to stick with the brevity of this account. Part of what Jesus being king is doing is that Jesus was fulfilling what God said the king would do in Genesis 3.15, where he says that the serpent, Satan, would bruise his heel, but he would crush the head of the serpent. In fact, we later learn that this is part of why Jesus came in 1 John 3.8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Destroy the works of the devil. Crush the head of the serpent. Mark is very brief in his account, and commentators think the reason he's brief is because not only is this not the first time Satan's going to tempt Jesus, this is not the, first, the last time that Jesus is going to crush his head. That Jesus is going to defeat him and demonstrate power over him. That The final victory is coming. This is the beginning of the victory. And so the king comes. He meets the credentials of being a king as Mark has laid out through the first 12 verses. He's God in the flesh, son of God, anointed with the spirit, powerful. The king comes and conquers God's greatest enemy, Satan. This is what the kings do when they're establishing their kingdom. They conquer their enemies. And so this king and kingdom idea that began at creation, continued through the Old Testament, is now being picked up by Jesus, actually bringing the kingdom to its full manifestation. And guys, we're still waiting for that. We're not there yet. This is a kingdom that he's already begun to demonstrate and bring into establishment, but it's not yet fully fulfilled. There is going to be this eternal state of God's kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. We're waiting for that. But it begins to show up now with Jesus in very small, seemingly invisible ways. Like the kingdom of God was encapsulated in 120 people in Acts chapter 2 before it exploded. 120 people. 
This king would create for himself this new people who are going to be characterized as a people baptized by the Holy Spirit. And next week, Jesse's going to walk us through the beginning of that process as he began to call his first disciples. So who will these people be and how will these people live under the rule of King Jesus in this new but different kingdom? A kingdom where the king is somewhat secretive about the fact he is a king. A kingdom that won't establish itself by strength and power in the physically earthly realm, but definitely strength and power in the spiritual realm. Don't think this is a kingdom without power just because we're not using a sword to convert people. Don't think this is not a kingdom without power just because we're not occupying all the positions of power in this earth. This this is a kingdom of power that we're a part of. It's just power in the spiritual realm primarily. And so how do citizens live? What is this kingdom like? I mean, in the past, it was clear if you were in this kingdom, you lived in a particular land, you followed a particular set of rules, and when you messed up, you followed a particular set of rules to offer sacrifices for your sins. But, but how's it different now? Well, you get hints of the difference of this kingdom in verse 14, where it tells us John the Baptist was arrested. We'll get into this more in chapter 6, but here is the, the most faithful servant so far of the king, a man that Jesus says no man has been born to a woman who's greater than this man. He's come fulfilling this, this calling to prepare the way of the king. He's done it faithfully, well, and he's arrested. So what does the king do? The king gets some boys that go down to prison and bust him out. Because he's the king, right? This kingdom is different. This kingdom is not all about earthly physical power. It's not a kingdom of brute strength. In this kingdom, suffering should be expected. Sacrifice should be expected. And even before the king suffers, his most faithful servant is going to suffer and die. Because that's what this kingdom is all about. You get a hint of it, what this kingdom is like, what these people are like, when Jesus reveals how we get into the kingdom in verse 15. Repent and believe in the gospel. Wait, 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 wait. Aren't we supposed to check our birth certificates, look at our last names, who is our family, where we're from? Isn't that what matters to get into this kingdom? That's the way it was before. Or or don't we have to prove that we can get in the kingdom by how well we follow these rules and and look how impressive I am. I'm, I'm in a, a worship gathering on a Sunday. Look at me. Isn't that how you've got to jump through these external hoops pro- proving how righteous you are? Is that how you get into the kingdom? What do you mean that our response to this introduction of the kingdom is repent and believe in the gospel? You see, this is the beginning of, of realizing that we are called as citizens of this kingdom to an inward life. An inward life. Before the outward life. This is not a call to adhere to a set of rules, but to check your heart and mind first to determine who has your allegiance. Repenting, therefore, is not just feeling guilty, feeling sorry that you've messed up, that you've sinned. That's part of it. But if that's all that is, it's very shallow, it's very temporary. It's like you're just sad because you got caught. Repentance is radically changing your direction from chasing sin to chasing your king. This is seen in the word believe. This is not just merely acknowledging the truth or validity of some propositional truth claims. This is not taking a theological test. Check, 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 check. All these things are true. Belief is represented... 
placing the entire weight of your hope for life now and life eternally on something or someone, and that something and someone is Jesus Christ. Like, all your eggs are in one basket. All your chips are pushed in on the table to one person. That's belief. It shows up in how you live your life. This repentance, this belief, this is not one-time acts. In fact, in the language of the New Testament, this is actually written in the present continual tense, the, the present tense. So it's ongoing continual action. In our culture, a lot of times people see repentance and belief as something I did on this day at this point in time that got me into the kingdom. They don't see it as something that I do every day. And so when you talk to people, are you Christian? Oh yeah, I was baptized in 19 blah, blah, blah. Or 2000 blah, blah, blah. Wait, wait, wait. That's, that's your hope? You did this on this one day a long time ago? Like, what about today? What about yesterday? A great question that you can ask people when you're engaging in the gospel conversations, when you get to this point, is when's the last time you repented and believed in the gospel? Because it's not a one-time thing. It's something we continually do. The kingdom is going to be populated by people who have and are walking in repentance of their sins and belief in the gospel. The person and work of Jesus Christ. And this repentance and belief leads to knowing our king, fellowshipping with our king intimately. Like John writes in 1 John that he's writing in the very beginning of the, the book. And this, I didn't put this verse up there, but just know he's writing that he's writing these things to us that we may have fellowship with one another. Because our fellowship is with our Lord and God and Savior Jesus Christ. Repenting and believing are not mere intellectual exercises, but they are aspects of a relationship, a fellowship. It's not, I've got to check these boxes to prove that I'm in. It's, this is what I love to do because he's my father. He's my king. He's my savior. I was introduced to, to this game a few months ago called GeoGuessr. Um, and played it a lot through the holidays, realized I may end up losing my family if I don't stop, because it's very addictive, especially for a nerd like me. It basically, uh, this game, it drops you off somewhere in the world on some road. So the Google map people have hired people to drive all the roads of the world and use, I guess, GoPro cameras to map 360-degree views of, of essentially every road in, in, in the world that nations will allow them to come in. It's the greatest job ever. Like, how do you get that job? Um, and so you can play this game where you're dropped off on one of these roads in one country and you've got to go up and down the road and all around as far as you can go to use context clues to figure out what country you're in and then you plot it on this other map and the closest you get, the more points you get. Crazy addictive. Loved it. And so I've, on Google Maps, Google Earth, I've been to Australia. I've been to different parts of Russia and Canada. I've been to Spain and Argentina and Brazil. At least on this game I have, right? I've seen sites, I've seen stores, I've seen people hanging Argentinian flags out of their, their balconies. So that's how I knew it was in Argentina. I've, I've seen and experienced those things, right? Not really. Not really. We intellectually can affirm some facts in Christianity and think that we know Christ. Just like I can travel the world on Google Maps and think I've been to those places. But all I'm doing is checking that box intellectually. I don't know the sounds or the smells or the people or the culture or the language. Now I can tell you about parts of the U.S. I can tell you about parts of Nicaragua and parts of China because I've been there 
and fellowshiped with the people. Genuine repentance and belief leads to fellowship and relationship and intimacy with King Jesus. If it's only intellectual, it will not engage your heart, your emotions, your mind, and your will. It won't change how you live if it's only intellectual. But when it is real, and and I'm praying and have been praying right now, Holy Spirit, reveal to every person in this room, if you're walking in genuine repentance and belief in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if it is real, then we become citizens of this kingdom and we become a people who reflect the character and nature of our King. We know our King. We love our King. We love to share life with His King and the King's people. And there are many ways that this is unfolded in the Scriptures. And we'll, we're going to see some of these come out in the Gospel of Mark, but you can go to tons of Scriptures in, in the uh, in the rest of the New Testament, one description can be found in 1 Peter. Peter, a companion of Mark, close, one of the closest disciples of Jesus. Peter is with these same Christians in Rome that Mark is writing to. And Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are the king's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received his mercy. So these are, this is a message of identity. This is who you are. So what does that identity look like as we live it out? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. One of the ways we reveal our genuine citizenship as a member of this kingdom is how we continue the same work that Jesus was doing in this passage against Satan, resisting temptation, saying no to sin. We fight against sin. And the sin we fight the hardest against is the sin in our spouses, right? The sin in our kids, the sin in our neighbors or coworkers. I mean, nobody's going to affirm that, but let's just look at our lives and see. Let's have a tape recorder on our shoulder and listen. Whose sins are we talking about the most? Whose sins are we fighting against the most? And sometimes we're so self-righteous, we take actual joy in the sins and failures of others because they just make us feel better about ourselves. One translation of this text calls us aliens and strangers, and the early church was so radical in the first century, they would be called aliens and strangers. According to Tim Keller, they didn't go to gladiatorial contests to see people murder. They didn't fight in Caesar's army to help him conquer the world. They didn't participate in infanticide, where you left babies you didn't want to die in the elements. In fact, they rescued those babies and raised them. They empowered women in ways that were very different than the rest of society. They were against sex outside of marriage. They were against same-sex behavior. They radically took care of the poor at their own personal cost. They mixed races and classes of people together in ways that were considered scandalous. And they believed that Jesus alone was the one way to salvation and entrance into this kingdom. Keller puts it like this. What if there was a group of people now who were following the same set of biblical values, rejecting bloodthirsty sports and militarism, empowering women, reveling in the combination of races and classes and radically serving the poor? What kind of group is that? It sounds liberal. Forbidding abortion, forbidding sex outside of marriage, forbidding same-sex practices, insisting that Jesus is the only way of salvation. What does that sound like? It sounds like a horribly conservative group. But this is who the people of God were in the first century. But go back to the passage 
uh, of 1 Peter tw- uh, 2, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They did not withdraw from society to go live in a compound isolated from the culture and, and be weirdos. They were in the culture so much so that the Gentiles and pagan neighbors that lived around would accuse them of being evildoers. Like we see the good things you're doing. We don't think they're good. We think they're evil. Because they were so much a part of the people's lives that they were around. Their neighbors and co-workers and whoever else in their family. This is the radical life our king calls us, creates us, empowers to live. Because it's the life he lived. Where he couldn't be co-opted by one group of people. And he rubbed against everyone. It's the life that our king died to give us. So a few questions that I'd like you to think through and discuss maybe at lunch today or during your DNA groups this week. And uh, you can write them down if you have time. We're going to throw them on the city and our social media sites this week in case you don't get them. Number one, how does your allegiance to King Jesus show up best in your life? Like what part of your life is it most obvious that he is your king? This is an opportunity to thank him for his grace, that he would save you, And he would do this good work in you. It demonstrates that your allegiance is with him. Secondly, everybody's going to be talking about this the rest of the year. So this is a great bridge to to gospel conversations. How should a group of people who are citizens of God's kingdom participate in this election season? How should we feel? What attitude should we have? How do we talk with others about, about this that reveal where our true citizenship is in? Like if if your hope is really tied to a certain political party winning, you're going to be disappointed. If you're crushed by the entire process and you want to be apathetic and withdraw from the process, why is your hope not also in King Jesus that can change people and change a culture and change a country from the inside out, not from the top down? Thirdly, how are ongoing repentance of sin and belief in the gospel manifested in your life? So where are you practicing this continual repentance and belief in the gospel? And then lastly, what areas of your life are you struggling to repent of sin and believe in the gospel? Like where have your hopes been crushed because you put it in something that was not the king? And it has let you down because it will always let you down. And what are the things that you're too excited about because you're putting your hopes hopes in these things? Look how productive I've been. Look how much I've gotten done. Look, look, my team is winning and my favorite player is doing great. All the things that we put our hopes in that give us joy that are temporary. I like my job. I'm earning a good paycheck. Man, things, life is good. That, that's filling me with hope. But it's temporary. You can lose that job tomorrow. You can lose your health tomorrow. Your hope has to be in something that transcends everything. And that is King Jesus. Colossians 1. 13 and 14 says, He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Every single person is living as a citizen of one kingdom or another. The kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of the Son. Jesus, our King, came and lived the life that we fell at every day and died the death that we deserve to die because of our sins. So that we, through his blood, through his redemption, can become a part of the kingdom of the Son. And be rescued out of the kingdom of darkness. So maybe for you today, like that's going to be the first time that happens. 
first time you genuinely repent and believe in the gospel. And today you're, you're going to be rescued out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of, of the sun. Great. Let us know. Let us walk with you what that looks like and, and how to determine if that's what's going on, the work of God that's in you. For every single Christian who's here, we continue to walk in repentance of sin and belief in our King. We're going to have a baptismal service on Easter Sunday. And so maybe that's where you want to, for the first time, declare to the world that you are allegiant to the Most High King, the one true King. And if that's you, make sure you let us know. Father, we are grateful that you are King of the universe, yet we can call you Father and Friend and Savior. Father, we're grateful for the work that you have done in the world, the work that we are caught up in, that we are a part of, that are... It's far bigger than, than the Crossing Church. It's far bigger than Monroe. And yet we are significant enough, created in your image, for you to come and die for our sins and give us an opportunity to repent and believe the gospel. And so help us this morning, empower us by your spirit to do that very thing. Reveal to the hearts of everyone here exactly in what ways they need to repent. We need to repent and believe in Jesus and trust our King, and serve our King, and obey our King. For our good and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.